0: Hello. Oh. Welcome to Moments of Clarity. My Moments is... of Clarity. <laughs> so this is the new intro, is it, Toby? <laughs> um, my name is Matthew Sortino and with me is To... <laughs> Toby Kent.
1: Hi, Matt. Hi,
0: everyone. Uh, on a serious note, Toby, um, my, my first question makes this moment extremely pertinent and that is an acknowledgement of country... Because I I have a question about the passing of the Queen, but I I think it's really important to recognise where we are and and the land that we are on is is not, in my opinion, the Queen's land. It's actually the land of the Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation and we pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and, and extend that respect to any Elders listening anywhere in the world. So, Toby... The Queen died recently and my thoughts were that the recognition, celebration was a little bit over the top, um, especially here in Australia, but the line that was like 30 kilometres long waiting to see the Queen. I've had enough people talk to me about that they've been a stable person in their life forever for me to go, okay, I can, I get a sense of where people are coming at but also to me a monarchy is just a bit of an outdated sort of, you know, customary thing rather than an important thing. Not to say that someone dying doesn't matter, you know, and and that they're not incredible people in their own right potentially, but that title doesn't mean much to me. But you're British, Australian, American, and I'd love to know your view on Queen Elizabeth II and, and the monarchy in general and how you felt with her death and, her yeah, her passing. So I think
1: as a British-American, Australian... The British part of me felt conflicted but proud. The American part of me felt it was quaint but just strange. And the Australian part of me felt that it was probably important for the British to mourn and go through their processes but it's probably time for... Australia to not have the kinds of connections that it does with, with the Queen as the head of state. You began this session by, as we always do, acknowledging the traditional custodians of land. And I think it is a contradiction too far to honestly seek reconciliation and uh, First Nations empowerment. And to still have the Queen as the head of state or in, in, in the British monarchy as the head of state now, King Charles the Third. I think that's another reason I wouldn't want to be King Charles because it sounds like a dog with no disrespect to the person King his. Charles Cavalier. Is yeah. that what you mean? Or just yeah. that the, he just the sounds spaniel. like a dog? No, no, I mean there's somebody called Toby. I've got nothing wrong <laughs> with people whose names sound like dogs. But well,
0: Matteo it, in Italian's a cat's name often. Um, yeah right.
1: And yeah. yeah, and we can get on all right. We dogs and cats can, can. live together yeah. in harmony. Yeah, uh, with respect. Uh, back to the Queen quickly. I think so. There are multiple layers of complexity to all this. The world is going through some really profound change without a lot of clarity about the direction it's heading in at the moment, and certainly within the UK, while the monarchy still represents an incredibly anachronistic system, a hierarchical society of entrenched inequality and privilege, depending which end you're looking for. But at the same time, as the actual power of the monarchy has diminished, played an increasingly important balancing role, So in a British context, uh, I'm still, however much it jars with my egalitarian values, I think it plays an important role. And just to give a kind of bit of colour to what I just said, uh, under the Blair government of the late 90s, early 2000s in the UK, they got rid or they reduced the number of, Uh, hereditary lords in the House of Lords, so our equivalent of the Senate. And that's absolutely, theoretically, the right direction to go in. The problem was that the way that that privilege had been passed down from generation to generation in terms of the, the lords, it was very difficult, actually, to say what political allegiance they would have. So it kind of became quite a good balancing body, however much you would not start from that place. And so when they began to put in more, a more meritocratic system, actually what you've seen is a house of lords, the second chamber, the upper chamber, that is much more political and much more about people rewarding, being rewarded for allegiances than the totally unfair and outdated hereditary system. So I think given, as I say, all of the change going on around the world, the UK being in just this ongoing cycle of upheaval, that I wouldn't mess with it uh, in a UK context. I think the other thing that I reflected on as I have had the privilege of going around to different parts of the world and getting involved in cultural celebrations and so on, is that if you look at the funeral and the various days and periods of mourning around the Queen's death, if you look at it through a more anthropological lens and go how quaint or that's the american in me maybe not how quaint but just you know, fascinating to see culture you know society organizing itself that way and, and so if you kind of depoliticize it and for better or for worse the uk is making itself kind of more and more irrelevant on the global stage and you go well wow, look at how those intriguing people on that funny little damp island do things what a you know i love to watch them and do their marching. It's kind of interesting. As I say, in the US, it means nothing other than some people love the monarchy. As back.
0: celebrities, isn't it? Yeah, it's but it's is a celebrity, celebrity
1: thing. Yeah. yeah. And, then, and then, as I say, in an Australian context, I think we really need to get on across the voice of parliament for our First Nations peoples, really work out how do we have. Uh, an effective system that fully includes, uh, embraces and respects Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And maybe once we've landed that, we can also then take a look at what we should be doing about a broader constitutional and monarchy relationships.
0: Yeah, and I absolutely agree there. And um, there really shouldn't be a debate about the voice, but there seems to be one starting as always in
1: politics and that's – so, you know. Oh, I d- can I disagree? Yeah, go for it. It's a bit like climate change. Mm. It's really important that there's a debate. Okay. It's just that the debate shouldn't be – About whether it's real or not. Real, in climate change's case, it shouldn't be about whether it's real or not yeah. and in you would hope that in the case of Aboriginal voice to parliament, it's not about – should it be or not? It's about how. How. So I, we I agree have to that. have a debate. Yep. Yep. Um, it's way too complex. Yes. To you need a debate. debate.
0: Yeah. So what I mean then is a debate about how it should be implemented rather than whether it should exist and likewise with the climate change debate. You're right. So I'm a, I am ai would say I'm a staunch Republican in an Australian context, an anti-Republican in an American one. Um, and I'm happy with what you said about the British one. I mean that's a custom... And a tradition and a part of the political system there. And I, I do understand that hereditary apolitical or, or less political um, potential in the House of Lords because we're seeing more and more political extremes. So it's a it, it might be the balance that we need in some way and maybe we need to find a way with our new head of state to make it less political and more st- stabilising while still being an Australian and potentially an Australian that maybe we'll find out uh if first nations people are involved in this this part of it too but um, that you would
1: hope that might be a fundamental part yeah, of the answer. yeah
0: but that's where the debate lies isn't it yeah so so really interesting um points that you made there toby it was great to hear your feelings about it because it is something again something new for me that just thought what are we doing here with with this outlandish um display but in a way it is It is nice and it, and maybe we need to have more of that time for mourning and reflection and care in our day-to-day life I, when people I, die. Sorry,
1: Matt, she's gone. I don't know how to break it to you. Um,
0: but King Charles third is here yeah. and, um, you know, he's been silenced on climate change though. Is that true? Is he not? He was quite vocal and now he's been asked to not talk about it. Is that something that we should be concerned about?
1: You will be shocked to hear that I'm not close enough to really know the ins and outs of that. He was encouraged by government of Liz Truss. Uh, what? Uh, How long will that last? I was going to say what, uh, and for the sensitively eared uh, of our listeners, what John Grayson, the Guardian, described as the trust to fuck. Uh, <laughs> So uh, he was advised by her government that has also um, put penalties or made it harder for renewable energy companies. I mean, it's just such a shambles at the moment. Where I'm going with this, talking of shambles, uh, there is a point. He was an arguably, under the British arrangements, uh, appropriately encouraged to not go to the next climate change conference, the next COP, mm. the next UN climate conference. In Egypt sponsored by coca-cola the biggest plastic polluter in the world
0: so there's just so many things (laughs) we could touch on everything we say with weird backstories but anyway we won't because we don't have all day but um the trust to fuck i really love that i haven't heard that but I i do hear often that she's maybe not she just that the party in general like there's some serious issues i don't know if it's similar to how Scott Morrison and the Australian Liberal Government, National Government were seen or is it is it something totally different from your perspective?
1: It's way too early to say but essentially Britain has never recovered from the global financial crisis and while the Morrison Government, uh, Abbott Turnbull Morrison Government Uh, here in Australia was varied between rabidly anti-action on many things to pathetically asleep at the wheel on others. It could afford to do so, to the extent that anyone, any government can afford to do so. But there was a lot more uh, cushioning here in Australia. Britain is um, seeing record rates of Food poverty, uh, energy prices uh, for consumers, households going through the roof. There is no cushion. And so, at a time when they need the very best of government, uh, they've sadly gotten the very worst.
0: Let's go back to the very best now, then, Toby. And uh, we're about to introduce the very best Tina
1: Turner. Tina Arena. Um <laughs> No. Which for um, our international audience Tina Arena is, is big. Was big in Australia. Oh, mm. uh, surely in Britain too. Well no. I
0: don't know. Sorry. Kylie Minogue's big in, in
1: Yeah, in Britain. Kylie
0: Minogue. So let's go. Let's just stick with that in Australia. That's big overseas. It's great to see. Great discussion there, Toby. We are going to be um having a great discussion now with someone that you consider a mentor so can you give us a little bit about our next guest and his influence and impact on you
1: so I still in some ways don't quite feel I've ever had a defined mentor Uh, and I say that just part because I'm um, you know very taken by the number of younger people that I meet who are like, oh, well, you know, I was talking to my mentor uh, and it seems to be quite a thing that people seek out and people actively ask people to do. I think I've been quite fortunate in my life to have had various people, some of whom have been my, you know, a, a boss uh, of mine at some point in time and uh, others just that I've met who I now realise have kind of played a mental role uh, even if I haven't had the wits to define it and stuff until until after the fact. And so the person we're going to talk to is Malcolm Preston, who headed up PricewaterhouseCoopers' uh, sustainability and climate change team in the UK when I worked for PwC back then. Malcolm then went on to be PwC's global head of sustainability. And for various reasons, he was both supportive of me personally and particularly in terms of my leading uh, PwC's sustainability team in Hong Kong. Uh, and then we stayed in good contact. He was a good friend to my family uh, through various things that happened in my life, uh, for which I'll always be grateful to Malcolm. But the reason for getting him uh, in, into this conversation was really about someone who has, on the one hand, had a very focused career while in other ways being tremendously adaptable through it. Uh, And I've always enjoyed the way that Malcolm articulates his journey. And it wasn't meant to be a pun in there when I said journey, but as our listeners uh, get into the interview, you'll hear that journeys uh, and and travel more broadly are really important to Malcolm. And maybe there's a little bit of uh, that resonates with me as well. But yeah, he's... uh, um, somebody who is a you know a genuine business leader who also combines uh some deeply held uh, convictions and who lives his values through his work which i think again if we go back to when you set up moments of clarity it was about seeking out people who align their values and actions and thought malcolm would fit the bill yeah absolutely he does so uh
0: let's get to it malcolm preston Malcolm, welcome to Moments of Clarity. Hi, uh, it's an absolute joy to have you already. Can you give us a little bit of an insight as to your intellectual and professional history
2: for the
1: listener, Malcolm?
2: My intellectual and professional history, crikey! Well, I don't I'm not think very intellectual.
1: intellectual before. I like uh, it. That's, that's yeah, a new addition, I like it. Man. <laughs> I've learned the word recently, yeah,
2: and uh, <laughs> I'm not so sure. But most of my friends would say I'm highly unintellectual. We'll come on to that. Um, <laughs> So what do I do? I, I, I was man and boy PwC, uh, what was Coop's and I brand, uh, became a partner there and then spent my f- full 35 years at P- PwC. Uh, for most of it, I was doing audits, M&A, standard stuff you expect big accountancy firms to do. Uh, but then for the last 10 years, and we'll probably dig into how this happened, but for the last 10 years, I uh, took over, ran and grew our sustainability practice. Uh, first of all in the UK, uh, and then I was asked to do it globally, so built it up globally as well. Um, So I retired in 2018. Uh, By the time I retired, we had uh, about 150 full-time sustainability staff in the UK and about 720 worldwide. Mm -hmm. Uh, My role was twofold there. One was to uh, develop new ideas and tools and frameworks that would allow business to engage for sustainability, uh, because broadly speaking, business was told to do it because it was the right thing to do uh, without any commercial acumen or commercial rationale behind. So my job was to work out how you could build um, sustainability into corporate decision making. Um, And also the, the second part was to represent the firm globally on big platforms. So I spent quite a lot of my time Uh, around different government ministries, the UN, the World Bank, these sort of places. Uh, I retired in 2018, Uh, sort of didn't want to stop work completely, but wanted to use what I knew, what I'd learnt, and have the biggest impact I could post full-time work, Uh, which is where I guess the intellectual bit comes in, which is where I now teach. So I teach, uh, I'm an adjunct professor at Kellogg Business School in Chicago, uh, and I'm visiting faculty at Harvard, where I teach business sustainability into business again that's probably the joke of it that I'm now actually called a professor which is something of a joke because all my friends would say you're the least likely person to ever be called professor but it does make me feel quite good
0: (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine just on that note how did you fall into teaching and did you have to train in any way to to get the most out of it or did you learn on the job or were you, were you a natural? Were you doing it anyway in your, your previous work?
2: Well, it's, that's a very good question. Um, to start, start at the, first, the last bit first, I taught myself when I knew, when I wanted to become a partner at PwC, I taught myself to public speak uh, because you can't have a role, um, a senior role in a firm like PwC and not be able to public speak, either um, to large audiences within the firm or to large audiences without. So I, I enjoy public speaking. So I I now also, one of the other things I do is I moderate big conferences. So I enjoy public speaking. So that bit, being in front of a crowd, wasn't a problem. Teaching is very different to conference speaking. Very, very different. Uh, You know, we used to have, I used to have an acronym um, or a mnemonic for when I was doing a conference speak, which was think, feel, do. What what do you want the audience to think, what you want them to feel, and what do you want them to do? And the old adage is they can only actually remember probably three things you've said in, let's say, a 40-minute speech. If you are teaching to a bunch of MBA students who are the brightest and the best in the world, they expect to get more than three nuggets of wisdom um, in a three-hour lecture. So it's a very, very different thing. An organization called the AACSB, I think it is, um, basically it's it's the Business Association of Business Schools. Um, and all the big business schools are part of this organization and they they run once a year a program to teach practitioners like me to teach um, so before i left pwc i got them to uh, i got pwc to fund half of it and i funded the other half of it uh, to go on this course which was absolutely brilliant absolutely fantastic uh, there are only about 25 or 30 of us on it and they they take take you through everything it's like to be in the academic world and what it's like to teach um, undergraduates or postgraduates uh, I very quickly realised I didn't want to teach undergraduates I wanted to teach postgrad uh, and so you know Kellogg is in one of the best business schools in the world right now and you, you're just teaching really really bright people so I realised I wanted to do that but there's, there are so many different styles of teaching at business school uh, and they taught you all the different styles that you could teach in in the style, uh, which was so clever um, and really, really eye-opening. Uh, and actually, I think anybody who does boardroom presentations, anything like that, ought to to go on a course like that because it's, it shows you how you can get different reactions from an audience, uh, how you can treat an audience in different ways to get the message across you're trying to get across. Uh, it was actually brilliant. I was
1: going to ask if you had you thought it would have been you know, valuable in your in your professional career. I mean, you obviously did very well despite it. It
2: but. It, it, it would have been. Um, it would have been. It, some of it's intuitive, but knowing how you achieve it and how you do it, there is actually a method, mm-hmm. if that makes sense, and you have to prepare. And, you know, particularly as an audit partner, some of your meetings were going to be more salesy-type meetings where you're trying to sell the firm services. Others were going to be very, very tough meetings where you were going to be telling someone – uh, that they couldn't account for something the way they wanted to account for it. And by the way, that was going to mean their profits were going to be less than they thought they were. Those are tough meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, and understanding how you, how you could approach, I mean, intuitively, I think the successful audit partners intuitively do it, but actually being taught the method uh, of, of how you do it, how you even, your opening line, how you behave as you walk in the room, that, it was just really interesting. And then back to your previous question about how did I get into teaching? Uh, when I knew I was going to retire, um, for about the, I would say the 18 months before I retired, I started asking my clients and my contacts what they thought I should do post-retirement, which most people thought was really odd. They thought you should you know, ask your colleagues, but actually your colleagues don't know you as well as your clients do. Your clients and your main contacts you work with in the, are actually out in the business place. They're the ones who see you and know you best. So I asked them what they thought what I should do. And this one chappy who um, I still do some work for, actually, an impact investor on the West Coast, uh, he just said, Malcolm, you, you should teach. And I did. I sort of at the time, I sort of laughed it off. And then I, I got him to explain why. And we thought talked it through. Um, and they introduced me to the, the dean of Kellogg. Thing. Dean of Kellogg goes, you know what? I'd love you to come and develop a program here, which would be like nothing else any of the other business schools have got.
0: And that's what right now I now do. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. There was something you you talked about in there that was about um, teaching yourself to public speak. What? Yeah. What was the? I mean, you said you needed it to to be successful as a partner, but but what what did you do? What What did it look like to to teach well, yourself
2: to public I, speak? Well, actually, I um, I took advantage of something that the time PwC had on offer. It was not mandatory. It was something it was a voluntary thing. Um, there was a group. I don't know if they still exist in the UK. They were called Actors in Industry. And they were actors who were teaching people like me um, how to project themselves on a stage. Um, so I worked with um, a wonderful guy for about three years. First of all, you had to get yourself a speaking gig, which if you're not used to ski- speaking and you're not known on the circuit, you have to actually force your way in. And having got yourself a speaking gig, you then start to work with the actor to say, well, how, are we gonna, how am I going to approach this? How am I going to do it? And first off, uh, he would say, well, let's have a dry run with what you're going to say, and he'd video you, and you'd watch it back, and you'd just put your head in your hands and go, oh, my God, that would be the most turgid thing anybody could ever watch. And then he would say, well, let's actually talk about what the messages are you're trying to get across, and then let's talk about how we're going to do them in a way um, that's going to be engaging. Um, And we just built it up and practiced it and rehearsed it. So it looks like you've walked on the stage and you're having a conversation. But you have worked so hard in the background, so hard in the background. You know, I was never allowed um, notes. Uh, I was never allowed a lectern. And if you're talking to, you know, I, I, I put myself on some quite big stages quite early. If you're talking to a thousand people on a big stage and you're not confident, you feel extraordinarily vulnerable, and people use crutches like a lectern, um, like speaking notes, to stand there, just you and your body, on a stage in front of a thousand people, with forty minutes, with no notes. You don't want to get stage fright, let me tell you that. Because, <laughs> and, he, and and the other thing was, he he used to make me turn. You know, everyone has their powerpoints and their slides, and he goes. But actually, Mark, we want them to be looking at you some of the time. So, you <laughs> you know, we'd ha- actually have blank slides where I'd click the clicker and the screen behind would go completely blank. So, that the people actually had to stop looking at the, the screen and look at you. And actually, the only thing they could then do is listen to what you were saying. So, yeah, it was brilliant training.
1: And it's funny, I mean, you're talking then in the same way that you went onto the stage and to the audience it would look very natural just like a conversation but you've done a huge amount of work to get there and in the same kind of way I think for a lot of our listeners the way that you've just described your career it all just seems to flow it makes a lot of sense very easy but my instinct is you probably didn't grow up saying boy do I want to be an auditor No, I could be wrong. But so what was, what was it that kind of led you getting into joining Cooper's and Lyme brand? What was your step there?
2: Yeah. Um, it was Gary player. I'm a, I'm a bit of golfer. It was a Gary player who said the more, the, the more I practice, the luckier I get. And I, I was talking to one of my mates shortly after I became a partner and I'd, I'd had a fantastic life up until that point with all the different things I'd achieved and done. And he said, God, Malcolm, I said to him, I said, I'm so lucky. And he goes, Malcolm, it's not really luck. He said, you put yourself out there, you follow your nose, you you, you you create your luck by creating opportunities. So to go back to the question, I w- when I left school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I, all I was going to do was go to university. I didn't even know really why I was going to university. And I'd read an article in a newspaper that fish farming was the new big thing. Uh, and I was going to be a fish farmer and make my fortune being a fish farmer. Oh. This was when I was 18 years old. But uh, my A-levels at school didn't include biology, which wasn't very clever, because to be a fish farmer, you really, back then, you had to be a marine biologist. So I did the next best thing, which was I studied oceanography um, at university, which I was allowed to do with, as a joint honours with chemistry, which is what I majored at school in. So I did a joint honours in chemistry with oceanography, which was a very, very new science back then. Uh, after three years of doing that and coming out with my one. I realized I had absolutely no interest in oceanography as a career. So I was back to square one with nothing. And uh, I went to the careers advice service and they just said, well, if you don't know what you want to do, uh, you should spend the next three years being an accountant, get qualified as a chartered accountant, and then you've got a business qualification and then the world's your oyster. So I started applying to the, what was the big eight firms back then. I got rejected by seven and accepted by one, which was Coobs and Librand. Uh, probably because at that time, Cooper's was the younger, newer firm. It was always seen as the slight agitator in the sector. And I was probably in the right mold for them, mm-hmm. uh, slightly maverick, slightly wacky. I wasn't the, the, your usual accountant. So I got my job as an accountant. And then I found I actually quite enjoyed it mm-hmm. because I had a license uh, to be inquisitive and nosy, I'm an absolute sponge for learning new things. And what is an order to do? They're paid to go and be inquisitive and nosy and sniff stuff out. So it was just fantastic, uh, and, and I just I, I naturally took to it. I enjoyed it. So why would why would I leave? And my passion, my 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 big passion is travel. And back then, the English and the Scottish Institute qualifications were probably the best two around. Uh, or the most well-known around the world, and you could travel anywhere in the world. So I got to work in Zambia, or I got to work in Australia for four years, so I could match my, my work with my travel. So I sort of fell into it.
0: Yeah, I, lo- I lo- love that. What, what, so what brought you to Zambia? Tell, tell me a little bit about Zambia.
2: Oh, uh, I just wanted to travel. Um, and it, back then, Coopers and Libran had a big swathe of the work, that was done in Zambia, and it all fell at one time of year. It all fell between sort of April and June. So the Zambian firm was small and didn't have nearly enough staff uh, to deal with this peak of work that happened just for three months every year. So they used to advertise in the U.K. for staff who'd like to go and spend three months in Zambia, and I was just stuck stuck my, stuck my hand up and off I went. Uh, and as it happens, uh, there were six of us out there that year, uh, three guys, three girls. As it happens, um, one of the three was a girl from Glasgow who's now my wife. I know, that's so fabulous. Right. we met there. We came back. We both, uh, she went back to Glasgow. Uh, we decided we wanted to carry on um, with our relationship. We wanted to uh, carry on traveling. So we both got uh, secondments down to Australia, to Sydney, and then lived in Sydney for the next three and a half years. So, Because, like I say, with that qualification, you can do those things. And, and and in the between times, I uh, was able to build in the, the travel that I really enjoyed. So I, um, on that occasion, I managed to get nine months off between London and Sydney and drove across Africa. Oh, wow. So I drove from London to Joburg mm-hmm. and then flew from Joburg down to Sydney.
1: And oh, when you said across, I assumed you meant across, but actually you went the long way.
2: Oh, well, well, down,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah down, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I well, so uh, I want to
1: press on on
0: the travel aspect just a little bit, Malcolm, because you know there's so much to to unpack with a with a job or, or you know that part of life. But sometimes travels, sort of the where turning points and and you know those moments that make you who you are can happen. Do you have anything that occurred on that trip that you you know stays in your mind, sticks with you?
2: On every trip I've done, something stays in my mind. My bio says that I've driven across every uh, every continent in the planet, except Antarctica, um, which is true. So I, I've, I've driven across every continent, and and all of them have little things that happen all the time that shape your character. I don't think I've had any what I would call life-changing moments on my travels, except where I've survived. If that makes sense, because mm-hmm. you you have you have life-changing moments where you do things which are really stupid, uh, or are really Really desperate at the time, where if you don't get it right, you might not come out the other side of it. But I think the thing I—I'm I, one of those people who I challenge myself, like with the conference speaking. I challenge myself to do things that I don't necessarily want to do, or I do want to do, but I'm slightly nervous about them or scared of them. But I know they'd be good things. And as they get closer and closer, you start to doubt yourself and go, "Well, this is such a good idea." And you have to tell yourself, it was a good idea when I decided I was going to do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's probably the thing I've learned over and over from my travels. You find yourself in situations and you think to yourself, why the hell am I doing this? Or how the hell have I got to this? And you say to yourself, it's going to be fine. When I set out to do this, this is what I was intending to do. Mm -hmm. It's just now it's on me. I'm feeling slightly different about it, but you have to take the big picture and step back if that makes sense. Okay, you know what? This is the right thing. This is what I wanted to do. And I have a phrase which I use a lot with my kids as well, which is what I call good, bad experiences. You can have an experience which is very, doesn't feel very good at the time. It feels quite bad at the time. But once you come through the other side of it, it's been a very good experience from a learning and a, uh, an experiential perspective. I've had hundreds of those whether it's being shot at in Nigeria or breaking down in the middle of the Sahara desert or being abandoned in central Africa on a different trip. yeah, I, You've had plenty of those, mm-hmm. but I don't think I've had anything which I would call an absolute light bulb life-changing moment on those.
0: I've always talked about um, wanting to build myself an insurance policy against regret. And it seems like you've been able to do that with your life by just saying yes and making things happen rather than, you know, wishing, wishing you did. Would you say that that's happened, you know, across most aspects of your life where you've really just said, Yeah. I'm going to make, yeah, I have to do
2: this? No, no question. In fact, I don't use the word regret. Mm. I, I'll go further than you. I, I, I would erase regret from, the, from, from my personal dictionary. You can learn from a mistake, but when you went into whatever you did, you did it for a reason. So, you, if you start regretting it, you can, you can, you can become quite negative and bitter and twisted about it all. But at the, at some point in time, the thing you chose to do, you thought was a good thing. You can learn from it, but don't do that again. Mm-hmm. But don't regret it because regretting it means you shouldn't have done it in the first place. Well, you've come out the other side. You've learned from it. So, I try to take the word. I try try not to use the word regret. Uh, and the other thing I do is what I call situational. Well. I've it's what you would call situational deprivation. It's to say, what would I do if I was told I could never do that again? Well, how would I feel if I was told I could never have that or never do that? And I think that's always a really good way of help, helping you make big decisions. You know, if you're thinking about, am I going to go and work overseas? Am I going to change job? Am I what? Are, any of those big decisions? If you say, how would I feel if in 20 years' time I'd not done that? Are you then going to be sitting there going, that was a bad call? And then are you going to sort of question yourself as to whether you should have made a different decision earlier? So it's a, I think it's a really neat way of, yeah. uh, and I'm, I, I yeah I, I mentor really quite a lot of people and coach people, and that's one of the things I'm always asking them. Well, how would you feel if you don't take that opportunity? Yeah, you know, how would you feel in 15 years time if you've never worked overseas or you've never worked in a different company or you? Uh, and I think that's a really interesting way of getting people to try and project themselves forward and then look back and say, how do I feel about? This decision i make how will i feel about this decision i'm making now in the future
1: yeah, and certainly that's a phrase my wife uses a lot when um, with our children but in terms of what we do as well as sort of on the whole uh you are we more likely to regret not doing it than we are to regret yep. doing it even if it doesn't work out quite as we planned yeah no, yeah situational deprivation i shall mm. borrow that phrase. there you
2: go it's yeah. a one of, the, one of the things that people say is make a list um, and sort of, of all the pros and cons of your decision and then rank them. Um, I have to tell you, that's never worked for me because you're trying to rank things which are unrankable. Mm-hmm. You know, it might be earning more money versus spending more time with the family or, you know, good health versus lovely weather. How do you rank those? It's, it's pretty difficult. So I think this idea of looking forward and going, how would I feel if I'd never had, never never took that opportunity I had? Is an easier way of doing
1: it. I think where I combine the two is I don't necessarily rank them, but, you know, sort of negatives down one side, positives down the other. And then even when one is overwhelmingly more convincing than the other, your gut still goes, ah, oh, there are a lot of ticks on that side, but I kind of want to do the other one.
2: Yeah. And that's where your situ- <laughs> situational deprivation is quite useful. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it can knock, knock, knock those things out. Mm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. to use that word, uh, intellectual again, you know, to intellectualise something too too much can take the heart away and I think, um, yeah, yeah, it's just so important. to go. How would you feel? How would you feel in that circumstance yeah. for sure? So so how did you move um, then? And I'm sure it was a a little bit of a um, – just in fall to you, there would have been a little bit of a drive to move from the auditing world at eventually PwC and then into – a sustainability role and into a sort of a new, really important field.
2: Yeah. I mean, it was, it's fascinating. I was at the time in the previous role at PwC, I was running one of our offices. I'd opened and set up and opened and ran one of our offices. And I was also still at that point, our travel and tourism leader, sector leader. This was 2007. The firm was starting to think about sustainability. We had a very forward-thinking chairman who, who thought sustainability might be quite important, but didn't really know why, and he offered for a whole load of the partners uh, to go to the Cambridge Institute for Sustainable Leadership program, which was in its it was in its early stages back then. Um, and with my travel hat on, I sort of thought, you know what, sustainability's got to be a big issue for travel. I don't know why, but it's got to be. So I volunteered to go on this this program for a week, and it was the most eye opening week i think i've ever had and you know, talk about turning points and as one one thing happened in my life when we in the context of travel lots of little things but this was probably the one big thing that caused a complete pivot in my where my career was going because in that week i mean it was just like the road to damascus it was, it was just like an epiphany i just like what the hell all these people were coming and talking to us about stuff. Nothing they told me was something I hadn't read in a paper or a news article or a magazine, and yet I hadn't strung it all together and worked out what was going on. I'm a bright guy, and I was like, this is mad. What's going on is absolutely mad, and these, you know, I guess maybe my science background helped. Most of the people we were, we were, we were meeting were scientists. They were data people. They weren't people who had some hobby horse acts to grind about this, or that, or the next thing. Um, this was just empirical data saying we're, we're we're going in a very wrong direction, very fast. Uh, and, and if there's if there's one turning point in the whole thing, it was this guy. I think it was on day two from the British Antarctic Survey, and these are the guys, these are the scientists who spend six months of the year at the South Pole. And he was a big guy with a big bushy beard. Uh, and he came into the room, and he was going to give us. A, I think we had about an hour, an hour and a half with him, on the evidence to climate, for climate change. And he produced an ice box, and he put this ice box on the desk. And out of the ice box, he produced a cylinder of ice, which was about I'm going to say half a metre long. So a big chunk of ice, and he put it on the desk, and he said, "This ice is 400,000 years old." And I know that because I've drilled it out from under the South Pole. And I can tell you, because of all the little oxygen molecules in here, we can date it. And so I can tell you from this exactly what the atmosphere was like 400,000 years ago. And we're going back further and further and further. They've now got back to over a million years now. Uh, And then he showed us the charts. And it was just like, for Christ's sake, why, why is nobody talking about this? And this when we were, this is when we were still under four hundred parts per million of CO two. We were at about I can't remember in two thousand and seven. We were probably at about okay. three twenty or three fifty back then. And it was just like this is crazy. It's absolutely crazy. Why does nobody know? So that was my that was my starting point. Was this is but then being, being broad in business, I was like, well, what the impact on business is going to be off the scale. And the companies that work out how they can operate in this world we're going to be going into, they're the winners of tomorrow. So I then went back to the chairman and said, I really, really am. This is what I want to do. I want to work out how we do this. You know, my, I was always seen in, in PwC as a bit of an, what, what we call an entrepreneur. So I was very entrepreneurial within a big business. Uh, we changed chairman and the new chairman knew me even better. And in his new role, he said, Malcolm, you're coming up for your five-year cycle at running this office. What do you want to do next? And he gave me three choices. Well, he asked me what I wanted to do. I gave him three ideas, one of which was running the sustainability practice. And he said, are you up for that? And I said, I absolutely, yeah. And so I had a massively important sponsor at the top of the firm. Uh, and we just went from there. And like I say, my role was very much to develop tools and frameworks that would allow business to engage on this subject. So that, that's sort of how it happened.
1: Can I just take us outside of I'm very much still on topic, but kind of slightly beyond. You, you said had a phrase just earlier, Malcolm. What I realized doing the Cambridge program for industry was those companies that can really get this. You know, we're going to be the winners of tomorrow. And we're now 2022. You were doing the course 15 years ago. We've seen you and I both worked with companies that kind of get it, and yet at the same time we're in an economy that is really creaking, and you can hear the sort of the sounds as it it tries to shift. But fundamentally, it looks a lot more like the 19th century than we really were in the 20th century. I mean, uh, than we need it to. How would you characterize where we're at uh, and Maybe. Are there any, where do you see glimmers of hope?
2: Where are we at? We're we're behind where we need to be. But I think we've, a lot of countries have done a lot more than people believe. And so I find that quite frustrating. You know, if you look at the UK as a good example, uh, the UK 15 years ago uh, relied 20 years ago, relied pretty heavily on coal for its power generation, the UK has no coal anymore. It's now using a lot more gas, which right now is, of course, a problem. Um, as we speak today, it's using a lot more gas than coal, but gas is a much better fossil fuel if you want to, yeah. you, know, uh, uh, you know, gas is better as a fossil fuel than coal. And and at the same time, continuing to invest heavily in renewables. Yeah. Uh, the, if you could get rid of all the vested interests, if you could get rid of all the politics, you, you'd solve this really quite quickly. But there are a lot of barriers in the way. I am an optimist. I, I am Ultimately, I'm an optimist. I mean, we. I had the privilege of meeting the head of strategy for, I think it was Toyota. It was one of the large um, Japanese car manufacturers who was um, introducing electric cars. This would be in about 2015. And they said, at the end of the Second World War, Japan had got electric cars. They had both electric cars and internal combustion engine cars, and they could have gone either way. And guess what? It's a bit like it's a bit like um, video recorders back in the day and VHS and Betamax, and everybody yeah. talks about that. Only you've only got room for one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the Japanese looked at which way the Americans were going, and the Americans were going down internal combustion engine, so that's the way they went. But if you imagine that from 1948 to now, we had been focused on electric vehicles. Think what sort of electric vehicle we would have now. Mm. After 80 years of investing, technological improvements, we wouldn't even think about The idea of switching to some sort of other type of car because suddenly electricity wasn't the right answer would be sort of unthinkable. And that's all where we've got to. We've got so much uh, vested in the structures we've built, but we have to reimagine it. Yeah. And one of the big debates we always used to have at, 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 at my team at PwC, and I, I now have with my um, MBA students, is who will be the big winners of tomorrow? Will they be the unicorn companies, the, the startups that grow really big, and or, or will it be the big? existing companies transitioning to new operating models. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And for me, the jury's still out on that. I think in the tech world, which isn't heavily invested in capital, the unicorns can definitely can definitely play a big role. But in the really heavy industries, where there's so much invested already, um, it's difficult to see how they can really be outgunned, which means it is going to be about transition, mm-hmm. uh, which is a different thing to you know transitioning big companies from one operating model to another is totally different to them becoming dinosaurs and being going bust and new companies taking over. It's a totally different type of dynamic that's needed from the from the capital markets all the way down.
0: So so what do you think the biggest barrier? You mentioned vested interests and in the politics, but there's got to be well, maybe that is the, the barrier and that's it. But I feel like there's there's something more to it, is it is it fear of change with people? Is it just let someone else do it first? You know, you're in in that world and have seen it from many different um, layers and lenses. Yeah. What, yeah. what what barrier are you seeing that we could hopefully solve, or is or is it an unsolvable uh, one?
2: I'll I'll answer that at two levels, if that's all right. At the really big macro level, it's about The the, the driver or the barrier that needs to be changed is finance. Because all these things have to be financed somehow or other. And, you know, if you can get the financing right, then everything else flows. And with finance comes incentives and all the other things that you need to make it happen. But fundamentally, big corporates play to the tune of their big shareholders. Uh, And if their big shareholders say, we'd like you to do something differently, or we don't want you to be running that company anymore – then the, the chief exec and the board will start doing things differently. So that comes down to the incentivization of uh, of those executives in the big corporates. Of course, the thing which people miss is they've still got to be able to make a profit because the big shareholders, guess what? Where does their money come from? Pension funds, private investors. And why do they want the money? Because they want that money for their retirement. And if they stop these companies stop making a profit, you stop funding the pensions, so... It's all interlinked, but there are ways, which comes on to the micro issue, there are ways that companies can continue to make profits while transitioning from one operating model and one set of solutions to another. But what stops them doing it? Because if it's still profitable, in theory, the shareholder shouldn't care what they're doing as long as they're still making a profit. And the things that stop them, we, we, we explore this quite a lot on my MBA course, because it's the starting point for if you're a young young gun, an early 30s person coming out of your MBA, with, out of Chicago, out of Kellogg, or any of the big business schools, and you're going into a corporate where you want to try and help make a change, you've got to understand why it's not changing already. And broadly speaking, there are three key things. The first is the senior people are a bit nervous and scared, because this hasn't been taught to them. If you're the leader of a company, but everyone's looking to you for leadership, it presupposes you know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So when you start talking about climate change, and this wasn't taught you at business school, or sustainable supply change, and you actually don't even really know what that means because that wasn't taught you at business school, that's quite a scary place to go. So it's easier to, to avoid it and find excuses why, why you should avoid that. That's number one. Number two is systems. Every system, we spend a lot of time talking about this on the course, um, every system, major major ERP system that big corporates use is driven around one outcome, and that's profit. Right? All the big ERP systems, uh, Oracle, SAP, JD Edwards, that's what they're built around. They're built around an idea of shareholders' primacy and making a return for your shareholder. They are building, to their credit, they are building sustainability modules, but they're add-on modules the core. They're not in the core decision-making process. I could show you boardroom after boardroom after boardroom who say they're on a sustainability journey, yet when push comes to shove, when you look at the board papers they're looking at for a big decision where the board might spend 15 minutes looking at it, at least 10 minutes of that, if not 12 minutes, um, will be on the financial. And there might be a little bit on, oh, you know, what about the social? What about the environmental? Yeah, but it'll be more like, have you thought about it? Not is it integral to the decision? Uh, And then the third one is, um, if anybody listening is interested, there's a book by a chap called Clayton Christensen, uh, who's quite an elderly professor now. He wrote the book a while ago, a Harvard professor, uh, called The Innovator's Dilemma. Mm. And it's how big companies can't innovate and why they can't innovate. And broadly speaking, it's because... They do what they do. Big oil and gas companies, they drill for oil. That's what they do. And to do anything else goes away from their core competence. And as a result of that, they have big systems, big measurement structures that measure based on what they do today. And it was one of the keys for when I took over running the sustainability team at PwC was I said, I do not want to be measured the way I was when I was an audit department. I want to, we're going to have a different set of metrics because success for this team looks very, very different to success um, as an audit partner. Uh, and so we had a completely different set of metrics to define success, which of course had some financial targets in them, uh, but they were different targets to what everybody else had.
1: Was it your ability to navigate the organization or was it, again, a, a flexible leadership that enabled you? Because again, it's a relatively easy thing to say. Oh, we just had to have different metrics. Um, but as you were talking about, you know, organisations struggle with that. Uh, and the bigger they are, the harder it is to have that flexibility. So
2: I have to be a little bit careful because some of this is obviously confidential and it actually goes to how we were able to do what we did. But the, as I said, the chairman understood this. And so the chairman uh, agreed with one, other, uh, one of the other board members who I reported straight to, who is now the cur- current chairman of PwC actually, we agreed between the three of us what what the metrics would be. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I used that word incentivize earlier. Uh, And it was very easy to incentivize the partners in my team and the other staff in my team to do the things we needed to do once they were built into the metrics. Because our pay and rations and our success was not going to be defined by the same thing as everybody else. I I think our targets were harder than anybody else's, to be honest. But they were different. The sort of thing I was talking about, I will give you one example, the sort of thing I was talking about to them was, you know, this is about PwC positioning itself as a leader in the sustainability space, that we have to do that. We have to have credible tools and frameworks, but we also have to be known as doing this. And so we had PwC for years have been measuring share of voice in the media across all sorts of different things. Uh, and I just said, we have to have, um, to be successful, we will need to have more than 50% share of voice month in, month out. In the UK media, now yeah, you know, we that was against the big four—McKinsey, BCG, everybody. We had to have fifty percent share of voice in the media. That is really hard. Mm. That is really hard because when a news story breaks and you know somebody wants a comment or wants a um, wants an opinion, you know, the journalists said that they're all on deadlines. They will call you if you don't call back within twenty minutes. They'll go and talk to somebody else. And that's not just Monday to Friday, nine to five. By the way, that's through the weekends. It's at night. Story breaks. They want they want a quote. They want they want some data. They want to, they want some uh, an expert to say something. And so there were two of us, myself and one of the other partners, and our job was to make sure, with the support of the others, that we could get that share of voice. And some months we hit eighty percent share of voice. So that then gets you out there. You're known. Now you have to have something to talk about. Um, So we then had teams who were focused on developing new products and services, which, guess what, was another of our metrics that, you know, if you're in the audit practice, you don't have a a metric which says build a new tool, right? (laughs) Nobody knows how we're going to audit broadly. We had had metrics about how we were bringing new services in, um, how we were selling them, so we were incentivized differently. Mm. I, I don't think, if I hadn't read the book The Innovator's Dilemma, I don't think I would have had the insight to be able to articulate that's what we needed to do. Intuitively, it's blindingly obvious, but you need you need a trigger to go. You know that's what we got to do.
1: So I've had the privilege of working with you, and so I know a couple of stories. One of the ones that you uh, I remember you talking to me about once was that most people probably wouldn't get from this conversation is that before you became an auditor, you were a punk rocker. Uh, Is that
2: right? I don't think those those two are related, except that that says something about my natural character. I've always questioned the system. Mm -hmm. Always questioned the system. Always wanted to push the boundaries on things. And I guess when you're 16, 17, 18 years old, and you sort of, how do you question the system? You rebel against it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I have my, uh, my salad. I salad. not have much hair left, but back then I had my spiky orange hair and went to all the punk gigs at the time, um, some of whom seemed to be resurfacing rather alarmingly. <laughs> um, I went to see the Stranglers a couple of weeks ago. Um, only two of the original lineup left, but yeah. I mean, that was a phase, right? But when you look back on life, you can sort of see why. Yeah.
3: Um,
2: Because I've always questioned the system, challenged the system. But you also need to know how far you can push it before you go beyond what the system would say is acceptable, if that makes sense. And uh, it's 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 a very old person thing to say now. But back in the day when I was thinking about, you know, what what I was going to do in my early 20s, um, I have to be honest, you didn't see too many people in PwC who had tattoos. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, of course, thinking has changed completely. but, But when I was, you know, in the early 80s, professionals at work didn't have a tattoo on, yet punk rockers were covered in tattoos. And so I would push the boundary so far, but I wouldn't go beyond the boundary where I would go, you know what, that would stop me doing something else because society wouldn't accept that anymore. The world's changed completely now, of course. Um, But in the world of PwC, I carried on doing it, carried on pushing the boundaries as far as I could. Mm -hmm. Um, But you had to understand what I called the brand boundary. You had to understand you couldn't do anything. You could go up to edges and limits and people start saying, Really? Are you sure that's all right? And you go, Yep, that's okay. But you couldn't go outside of that. Mm-hmm. Or you just you'd be gone, gone in seconds. So you could push the boundaries, but you couldn't go beyond them. That was very important because you also, in a world of competition for jobs, for clients, for you also have to be different. Mm-hmm. And Toby, you mentioned that we worked together. You will remember me saying, if we're at a pitch, they won't, and there are four or five in the pitch, you've got to do something in that pitch where afterwards they go, yeah, those are the ones who did that. Those are the ones who said that. You've got to do something which is different to everybody else. Just doing the same as everybody else better doesn't differentiate you, really. Mm -hmm. You've got to do something different and demonstrably different. Uh, I'll give you one quick aside. Um, when I set up the, the office south of London, uh, I wanted to get all the chief executives together uh, into a peer group of all the big companies. And everybody said, you know, that's going to be really difficult, Malcolm. You're close to London. These chief executives, their their peer group meetings, their networks tend to be in London because they're so close to London. And I said, yeah, but that means I've got no way of engaging with the chief execs of the companies in in my patch. And so we thought, well, maybe we should have a dinner for them. Or well, why would they come to a dinner? Mm-hmm. Well, they wouldn't. So we started to arrange events which were within what I call the PwC brand boundary, but right at the edge of it. So the first dinner we had, we hired the Orient Express. Mm-hmm. Because you were running a tr- the travel business. Well, no, that was, that was more because the Orient Express did a little, cert, did it had a route which ran around the southeast of England. Oh, wow. With the dining car, mm-hmm. so now we're going to have dinner on the Orient Express on a train going around your region. Oh, that was quite interesting. How often do I get invited to dinner on the Orient Express? And um, what what I talked about with my PA and with my marketing team was this has to be the non-negotiable event, the non-discretionary event. This is the event which they put in the diary, and whatever happens, they say to their that the, the chief exec says to their PA. I'm not going to take that out. I want to go to that, and so it had to be different. We did ridiculous things. We um, we had a dinner in a in a country house hotel, and we picked them up from a car park um, in helicopters and flew them all the way up to the Thames, along the Thames, up to the Thames Barrier, and then back down to this country house hotel where they got out and then they had a drink and then they had dinner. What chief executive is going to turn down a tour of South London on a helicopter? I think the best one we did was we hired three Tiger Moth aircraft and we gave them each flying list in a Tiger Moth. You know, those things, they cost money, but they were no more expensive than what was the traditional PWC entertaining uh, of taking someone to hospitality at the rugby. Right, mm-hmm. But if you're not a rugby fan, that's no use at all. But who's going to turn down you know, flying in a Tiger Moth yeah. followed by dinner? And then what happened, after we'd done about four or five events like this, where we would get 30, 35 executives, we didn't load it with PwC people, which was the traditional thing to do. If we had 35 of them, we'd have maybe four or five PwC partners. That was it. One per table to host. And we let them talk amongst themselves. And guess what? They actually enjoyed it. And they actually found there were local issues that they all had in common. Transport, education, things that actually mattered to them in the local area. So then we just started convening normal dinners. And guess what? They all kept coming. Mm. That's fabulous, Mark. You, you had to push it to start with because you had to be different. Mm-hmm. It had to be that non-discretionary thing. Yeah.
1: Now, on, on discretionary things, uh, you've been very generous with your time. Uh, mm-hmm. But before we let you go, I know there are different ways in which you could choose to take it. But if, you were to, if we were to pin you down and really try to say, when you look across everything that you've done, how it all comes together, how would you describe your moment of clarity?
2: I think I've probably had more than one moment of clarity. Mm -hmm. The first moment of clarity was when I was trying to become a partner at PwC. Until that point, I just sort of followed my nose. Uh, I worked out I wanted to be a partner at PwC because I really enjoyed my job, as we were talking about earlier. Um, So my first moment of clarity was... I didn't get into the partnership the first time I tried. I was, you know, all the feedback was really positive and really good, but I didn't quite have it. Uh, and it was didn't have it because I hadn't been out in the market. And, we, and I didn't know how to do that because you sort of had to specialize and I had nothing I wanted to specialize in. So my first moment of clarity was actually on a ski holiday with my wife uh, where we were in a jumbo chalet and we got in with a group of people a little group on a table and we got friendly with them each night. We'd meet in the bar and then go for dinner together, about eight of us, four couples. The other three were all in media of some shape or form. And all they talked about was media. And I, being a sponge and I'm interested in stuff, I just found this interesting, but it wasn't my sector. It wasn't what I knew. And then sitting on the chairlift the next day with my wife, I said, my God, these guys, they work in media and all they talk about is media. And it was like this lightning bolt it's like well that's because they enjoy it Mm -hmm. it's because media is what they love so they love talking about what they do as their job it's one and the same they're not talking about the intricacies of the business particularly but everything they talked about was around the media subject on media so my wife looks at me and says so what are you interested in what's your thing and i just said well you know it's travel That's what I do. I love traveling. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Hence, I became PwC's travel sector leader. I went back and I went back literally after the holiday. I went back to my boss and I said, I think I'd like to set up a travel sector group because PwC didn't have one. Mm -hmm. And um, he said, he said, we don't have one, Malcolm. And I went, exactly. (laughs) And guess what? That's when I also knew I had to do my, um, my public speaking. So I went to the largest travel organization in the UK. And I just said, I'm trying to get into the travel sector. I know you've got a conference coming up. I'd like to speak on it. So that was my first moment. And then the second one was definitely what we were talking about earlier, which was I then built my career out and I just knew the stuff I loved doing at work. Uh, But then the next big pivot was moving into sustainability. And that was absolutely the ice core on the table and me suddenly realizing again this moment of, my God, Everybody seems to know this, but nobody's doing anything. Yeah. And as PwC, we have, at the time I used to use the word duty. I said, we have a duty to do some stuff. That's the world's largest professional organization. But also that's what I just knew we had to do. As you build out your career, make sure you're doing something you enjoy and you love. And secondly, sometimes you just hit, hit between the eyes with something that's just like, wow.
1: Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you very much, Malcolm.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Malcolm. It was, a uh, yeah, a joy. I told you it was a pleasure before I even spoke to you and, um, you made it, you made it happen. So, so thank you for that.
2: Right, I, just, I just rambled. <laughs> <laughs> and, um,
1: thank you for your, uh, I mean, what well, I didn't, we didn't kind of cover it today, but uh, when Malcolm was talking about mentoring a lot of people and so forth, he was very helpful to me as ever and on many occasions. So thank you very much for that, Malcolm.
2: Ah, uh, always here.
1: And, um, you're definitely not always there because you do travel a lot, but uh, I'll certainly be coming to find you.
2: Yeah, let me know if you need any, any thoughts.
1: Oh, I really appreciate it. That's really good of you. Thank you. Cool.
2: I'll be always here. All the best. Good evening. Cheers. Cheers uh, have a good one. Bye.
0: Thank you so much for listening to Moments of Clarity. If you are enjoying the podcast, there are a range of ways you can help us grow and continue to bring our conversations to you. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Moments of Clarity on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or the podcast player of your choice. This will ensure you never miss out on an episode. While you are there, you can leave us a review. It really does assist us in getting found by new listeners. However, the biggest way you can help us is to share the podcast with friends, family, colleagues and your social networks. We are hoping to build a community here at Moments of Clarity and want you, loyal listener, to help us build it. We would absolutely love to hear from you and always take the time to reply to your messages. You can get in contact with us on Instagram at Moments of Clarity Podcast, via our website, moc pod.com, or email hello at moc pod.com. Thanks again for listening to Moments of Clarity. See you next time.